You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And we're going to be starting a veteran story with uh, Pete Mecca in just a moment. But before we do, it's... uh, this season should be celebrated for what it's all about, in my opinion. And uh, at the same time, um, we need to uh, not only do that, but always keep in mind our our veterans. And uh, so, with that being said, just we're going to take a moment and ask you one to go to our website when you can and and look at the uh, J. Roy Ritchie Memorial. And that's just asking veterans to pray for other veterans that need their help. And if you're a veteran and feel like you or you know a veteran that needs prayer, just send us an email. We don't do anything with your email address other than thank you for telling us folks that we need to remember. So with that being said, let's just take one minute and uh, then we'll we'll go over to Pete. Okay, thank you everyone and uh, amen and uh, we're now going to turn the show over to Pete and he has got one great show lined up. This is going to be so interesting and um, it's people we've all grown up with and loved over the years. So with that being said, it's all yours, Pete. Thank you, David. Good morning, America. Welcome to A Veteran's Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I'm your host, Pete Mecca. You know, folks, there was a time Hollywood was patriotic and not so darn political. That's going to be part of the story today, but especially the story of Jimmy Stewart. In Frank Capra's classic 1946 Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, award-winning actor Jimmy Stewart played a small-town man who becomes increasingly frustrated with the -the run-of-the-mill life and overwhelming financial problems. Seemingly without hope and broken in spirit, his character, George Bailey, stares threateningly at the ice-filled river flowing sluggishly beneath the town's bridge. He is, of course, contemplating suicide. Suddenly, Angel's second-class Clarence Oddbody, played by actor Henry Travers, diverts the suicidal George Bailey from his own woes and plunges into the icy water, only to be saved by good old George Bailey. The rest, as they say, is cinematic history. But it's not the whole story. When Frank Capra attempted to cast Jimmy Stewart in the lead role, Stewart and his agent, Lou Wasserman sat down with the filmmaker to hash out the details. As Camper relates the details of Stewart's role, he remarks that only Stewart could play the part of a guy who wants to commit suicide due to Stewart's combat experiences in World War II. Stewart reportedly said, well, wait just a minute here. Uh, That's not what I want to do. The meeting went downhill from that point. Stewart got up and walked out. Frank Caffer was also a war veteran in the Pacific. 
and finally persuaded the famous actor to take the part. Now, Jimmy Stewart most likely took the part because a new breed of actors like um, Marlon Brando and James Dean, they were coming on the scene, and Stewart's generation of performers, especially the men of Hollywood who wore a uniform for the duration of the war, were competing against youthful faces versus older experience. Plus, Jimmy Stewart was suffering what is now identified as PTSD. Next time you watch It's a Wonderful Life, look a bit closer at Stewart's performance. The rage, frustration, his wild-eyed scenes were what Capra and Stewart and several other film crew were feeling after serving on the battlefields and in the air and on the oceans during World War II. Donna Reed, who played Stewart's wife in the film, said of the filming, it was not a happy set. The guys were very tense. They would go off by themselves and huddle. Should we do this? Should we do that? She said that's how it went for months on end. Now, while making It's a Wonderful Life, Stewart even questioned the superficiality of acting and Hollywood in general. In reply, Lionel Barrymore, who played the double-dealing and penny-pinching Mr. Potter, said to Stewart, So, are you saying it's more worthwhile to drop bombs on people than to entertain them? Needless to say, that set off a hot-blooded round of fireworks. There was trouble on stage. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart, however, was, as many of his roles projected, a talented but ordinary type of individual, and without a doubt, patriotic and brave. This is his war story. His acting career before Pearl Harbor was critically acclaimed and critically damned, depending on the movie, his role, and which critic was criticizing. Now, Jimmy was addicted to aviation from an early age. He earned his private pilot's license and commercial license before World War II. With war clouds gathering on the horizon, listen to this, Jimmy Stewart was the first major movie star to enlist in February of 1941. He had tried to enlist in November of 1940, but was rejected for being underweight. He gained weight by eating spaghetti at least two or three times a day, augmented by steaks and milkshakes. At 32 years of age, he was also over the age limit for aviation cadet training. But he beat the ruse by applying for a commission as a college graduate, Stewart graduated from Princeton, and a licensed commercial pilot. By war's end, Jimmy Stewart was one of the few men who began as a private and finished as a full bird colonel. But Flyboy's Jimmy Stewart did not receive the role he wanted to play in the Army Air Corps. The Army wanted to capitalize on his fame by narrating train films, radio appearances, and war bond tours. Having his salary as an actor drop <laughs> from $12,000 a week to $21 per month as a GI gave Jimmy Stewart all the ammunition and incentive he needed 
to rock the military boat. Jimmy got his wish. First, he was a flight instructor on AT-9s out in California. And in New Mexico and Utah, he trained uh, as bombardier and four-engine uh, pilots. Eventually sent to Boise, Idaho with the 29th Bombardment Group, he became an instructor on B-17 Flying Fortresses. He lost his roommate in one accident and three students in other mishaps. Stewart was one of the few training officers who remained in the field control tower until all his planes had returned. On one night mission, Stewart left the co-pilot seat to check on some equipment as the student pilot continued the flight. A new navigator took Stewart's co-pilot seat. One of the engines suddenly exploded. The flying shrapnel knocked the student pilot unconscious, and the new navigator absolutely froze at the controls. Stewart returned to the cockpit, removed the navigator from the co-pilot seat, extinguished the fire, and landed the B-17 safely on three engines. But men like Jimmy Stewart were needed in England. On November the 11th, 1943, Captain Jimmy Stewart led 24 B-24 bombers to Jayo, England, by way of Florida, Brazil, Senegal, and Morocco. They were signed to the 2nd Air Division of the 8th Air Force, stationed in Tidbetham. After a few orientation flights, Stewart made his first mission to bomb the naval yards at Kyle in a B-24 named Nine Yanks and a Jerk. On his third mission, 35 B-24s hit V-1 rocket launching sites in France, except for two B-24s that collided during takeoff. All the bombers returned without a scratch. Stewart took care of his men. One crew stole a keg of beer and hit the booze in the barracks. Stewart walked in, tossed off the covers, drew himself a glass, announced that a keg of beer had been stolen, and it was a very serious matter. The keg was beat to return, if ever found. Stewart finished his beer and walked out. Another time, a paymaster said he didn't have enough money to pay Stewart's crew on time. Jimmy Stewart advised the paymaster, uh, 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 you better find the money or you're going to be transferred to the infantry. Jimmy Stewart's crew was paid on time. Returning from a bombing mission over Ludwins happened. Stewart noticed the lead group in his flight was off course and headed over enemy air bases in northern France. He radioed the lead plane. The flight leader replied, no, we're not off course and stay off the radio. Stewart could stay with the main formation for better protections or stay with his flight leader to offer them better protection. He chose to stay with his leader. Soon, the sky was filled with over 60 German fighters. The flight leader went down in flames, as did seven other B-24s in the lead group. 
all of Jimmy Stewart's planes returned safely to England. On February 25th, Stewart's group flew a nine-hour mission over Firth. Some of the lead 24s dropped shape to confuse enemy radar. That's aluminum strips. Well, it didn't work. The shape actually drew radar-controlled anti-aircraft fire at the lead planes. A direct hit exploded right behind the nose wheel of Stewart's B-24. But the Liberator kept on flying and somehow made it back to base. Once Stewart had the bomber back on the ground, the plane buckled and cracked like an egg. The uninjured crew exited the cracked egg and took a long look at their destroyed aircraft. Stewart told the ground crew chief, sergeant, the fella could get killed in one of those things, and he certainly could have. Folks, we're going to our first break. Let's uh, we'll return in just a couple minutes with the rest of the story on bombardier pilot Jimmy Stewart. This is Rocky Blyer, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and Warrior to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who've been touched by pediatric cancer. I'd also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio, for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and I'll see you at noon on January 28th. I want to thank Rocky Blyer for making that promo. Uh, he is a gentleman's gentleman, and many of you know him uh, throughout the Atlanta area, and uh, he's always willing to help. And, Rocky, thank you very much for that. And we look forward to January the 28th and quite an event. We'll be back right after a couple more messages. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, welcome back, folks. We're talking about uh, World War II hero and movie star Jimmy Stewart. You know, his he was known for his sense of humor and his down-to-earth personality and his ability to lead and take care of his men. It made Jimmy Stewart one of the most admired and respected flyboys of the 8th Air Force. But war is a nasty business, even for Hollywood stars. He'd seen bombers blown out of the sky with many of his friends. He'd seen friends fall out of the bombers without parachutes. He said of war, Fear is an insidious thing. It can warp judgment, freeze reflexes, it can breed mistakes. And worse, it's contagious. I felt my own fear and knew that if it was checked, it would infect my crew members. 
In April of 1945, Jimmy Stewart was promoted to colonel and made chief of staff of the 2nd Air Division. It was during this time, while waiting daily for his air crews to return, that Jimmy Stewart's hair started turning gray. You know, to research Jimmy Stewart's war experiences, tell the story of humor and tragedy, of humanity, and the price of freedom. He returned to the States a hero, if hero is the right word to use. Jimmy Stewart was pale and sickly and sick at heart. He lost weight he couldn't afford to lose. He'd lost friends he'd never forget. Withdrawn even for a timid man like Stewart. He'd seen too much. He'd changed and was wondering if he could carry on, especially in Hollywood. But his movie career did rebound, and It's a Wonderful Life was part of that recovery. Later in life, Stewart was asked about his thoughts on World War II. He replied, It's something I think about every day. It's one of the greatest experiences of my life. When asked if greater than his movie career, Brigadier Jimmy Stewart replied, much greater. Jimmy Stewart flew one more combat mission after World War II. I didn't know this, and I was just almost very, very proud of it. In 1966, Jimmy Stewart flew on a B-52 bomber as an observer over North Vietnam. A year later, his stepson, Ronald McLean, was killed in South Vietnam. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart, great actor, World War II hero. Pretty much a man we all looked up to during his career. But he was so very, very human. A great gentleman, and he retired as a Brigadier General from the United States Air Force. Yeah, there was a time when streaming liberals didn't infest Hollywood. There was a time when the Hollywood actors and actresses stepped up to the table and did what they had to do. You folks remember B. Arthur? Dorothy? On the Golden Girls? Yeah, B. Arthur served in World War II. She served with the United States Marine Corps. For two and a half years. Now, if you remember her roles, you can you can imagine this to be true. In her enlistment interview remarks, they described the author as argumentative, over aggressive, but probably a good worker if she has her own way. <laughs> How about Paul Newman? Oh yeah, HUD. Yeah. Good old Paul Newman, old blue eyes. Paul Newman joined the Navy in hopes of becoming a pilot until his color blindness was discovered in training. Instead, he took the job of aviation, radio man, and aerial gunner. The future leading man of Hollywood and his air crew were assigned to be at Okinawa. But his pilot developed an ear infection, and they were delayed. 
It was an ear infection that changed cinematic history. Had Newman and his pilot gone when they should have, they would have likely been killed. The rest of their detail was killed. In 1946, he was discharged with a number of honors, including uh, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, American Air Campaign Medal, World War II Victory Medal, Good Conduct Medal, and a host of others. Hey, how about the old slugger himself, the baseball player Pete Rose. Pete Rose was in the Ohio National Guard. He served at Fort Knox for six months where he was a platoon guide. Then he spent parts of the next six years balancing his baseball career with time as part of a reserve unit at Fort Thomas where he was the company cook. How about old Rhett Butler, Clark Gable? You may have heard the story, but you may not know all of it. After his third wife, Carol Lombard, died in 1942 in a plane crash while she was returning from a war bond rally in Indiana. And by the way, she was the first woman uh, killed in World War II in, in support of the war effort. Clark Gable was depressed, and he... Uh, he insists on enlisting, enlisting and end up serving in high-profile combat missions. There's a rumor going around that he just did uh, films, uh, you know, support films and training films, things like that. No, Clark Gable actually did go on five combat missions. He was awarded uh, the Air Medal right after D-Day and the Distinguished Flying Cross on one mission the heel of his combat boot was shot off. You folks remember uh, Gone with the Wind? I'm sure you do. You remember old Ashley Wilkes? Played by Leslie Howard? Leslie Howard lost his life in World War II. He went down in an airplane that was shot down by a German fighter. The sad story is that British intelligence knew a German plane and German fighters on the way to shoot down that plane. But they could not warn the pilot because they had found out about the attack because they had broken the German military codes. And they feared that if they warned the pilot, the Germans would figure out that they had broken their military codes. So Leslie Howard went down in flames to prevent British intelligence from losing their most powerful asset in World War II when they broke the Enigma Code. Okay, how about the rebel himself? Huh? How about good old Steve McQueen? He always played the rebel, didn't he? I mean, kind of guy that always action, in trouble, and stuff like that. Well, guess what? That was Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen served right after World War II. He became a tank driver for the Marine Corps in 1947. But, as we've discussed, the film star had a very rebellious streak during his tour. He was promoted to private first class in the Marine Corps, and he was reportedly demoted back to private seven times, including once when he stayed out too long after weekend pass 
and had to be hauled back by the shore patrol. But he was also heroic. He saved the lives of five Marines when he pulled them out of a tank just before it broke through ice and fell into the ocean. Steve McQueen, Steve McQueen was discharged in 1950. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Hey, folks, you remember the Twilight Zone? There's a story behind the stories. If you're a big fan of the Twilight Zone, then you might be interested to know that it might never have been created if Ride Sterling was never injured in World War II. The future writer was eager to enroll in the war to help fight the Nazis. But he was instead sent to the Philippines to fight the Japanese. He was put into one of the most dangerous platoons in the area, nicknamed the Death Squad, for the high number of casualties suffered in the group in combat. Sterling was lucky enough not to be killed, but he hardly came out unscratched. He was injured uh, numerous times in battle, but more dramatic was the severe trauma he experienced by serving in such a violent area. As a result, he was plagued by nightmares and flashbacks for the rest of his life, and today we call that PTSD. The events he experienced reshaped his worldview, and with them, he was inspired to create The Twilight Zone, and he wrote many of the show's most famous episodes. You don't think about things like that when you see a Hollywood actor up there introducing scary stories that he was a combat soldier and suffered the consequences. How about the slugger baseball player Ted Williams? He not only served in World War II, he was also involved in combat in the Korean War. The baseball player saw him as a fighter pilot and a flight instructor at the Naval Air Station in Pensacola. Although he was no longer on active duty after World War II, he did stay in the reserves and was called back to duty in 1952 and served in the same unit as future astronaut and future Senator John Glenn. And don't think his celebrity status let him sit back at a cushy desk job. Ted Williams flew a total of 39 combat missions and he received an air medal for bringing his damaged plane back to base. In fact, he was so revered by Army higher-ups that when he turned 40 years old, Break. General MacArthur sent him an oil painting and personalized it with to Ted Williams, not only America's greatest baseball player, but a great American who served his country. Your friend, Douglas MacArthur, General, United States Army. We're going to our second break, folks. We'll be right back. I'm your host, Dr. Hal. Every week, we come to you with the information that you need so that you will be prepared to advocate for your family and for yourselves when it comes to your health care. God forbid we get Ossoff and Warnock in the Senate, and the left gets what they want, which is a majority in Congress and the White House. First of all, health care will be more expensive. There initially will be a public option. The government will run it, 
They will be initially very inexpensive, and it will drive commercial payers out of the healthcare market. Then the choices will disappear. The only insurer out there will be the federal government, and that's when we get a single payer. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're talking about Hollywood and their time in the military and in World War II. The Singing Cowboy, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the Easter Bunny, all those good songs from the Singing Cowboy, Gene Autry. During a live broadcast of his radio show on July 26, 1942, the musician was inducted into the Army Air Forces as a technical sergeant. While running the radio show remained a part of his Army duties, he also set out to upgrade his private pilot license to flight officer uh, and earn his wings. He succeeded on June 21st, 1944. His chief duty as a pilot was to haul fuel and other necessities, and he eventually worked with USO. He was only discharged in 1946. His awards include the American Campaign Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, and World War II Victory Medal. Uh, that's not really a great description of Gene Autry, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, it says that he hauled fuel and other necessities. Well, he did so over the Himalayas, pump as it was called. And at war's end, there were hundreds of American aircraft uh, crash sites and there never recovered crews. It was a very dangerous job, but Gene Autry did his duty. Tell you another thing about Gene Autry, and I didn't even have this as part of the program, but I do remember it. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt's son, I forgot which one, he was a, a general. He was on his way home and he kicked a soldier off the airplane so his dog could have a seat on the airplane. Well, the soldier was en route home to uh, bury his father, who had passed away. There was a big stink about that. And uh, the politics uh, we're not going to discuss, but the pilot of that airplane was Gene Autry. Just very interesting to know that. All right, how about the man himself? You know him, Henry Fonda. The actor famously enlisted in the Navy with the quote, I don't want to be in a fake war in a Hollywood studio. He served for three years, first as a seaman and then rising to the rank of lieutenant. He received a presidential citation of the Bronze Star, Henry Fonda. I'm not going to mention his daughter, Jane Fonda. Most Vietnam veterans don't like Jane Fonda. I can tell you that right now. You may remember Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. Well, as a lieutenant, junior grade in the Navy Reserve during World War II, Fairbanks was assigned to Lord Mountbatten's staff in England. 
it was an appointment that gave him access most reserve officers didn't have. As a result, he became extremely proficient in military deception skills. So they used those skills to form the beach jumpers. You've probably never heard of the beach jumpers. The mission of the beach jumpers was to land on beaches and lure the enemy into believing they were the force to be worried about, when in fact the real attack unit was landing somewhere else. For his ingenuity, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was awarded the Silver Star, the Distinguished Service Cross, the Italian War Cross for Military Value, several French awards, and made an honorary knight commander of the British Empire. Ever heard of a guy named Bob Kinshaw? Yeah. Bob was better known as Captain Kangaroo. He enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserves in 1945, but according to one research I did, they say he never saw combat. See, there's been a long story floating around that Lee Marvin once said that he and Bob uh, Keyshaw served together at Iwo Jima. But much like other myths, they said this one was false. They say World War II ended before either could take part. I don't know about that, folks. Most of the things I did research on, Lee Marvin was wounded in the buttocks on Saipan, and uh, Captain Kangaroo did serve in the military during World War II. But to tell you the truth, with all the research I've done, I don't know if he was in combat or not. And that's a shame because there, there are a lot of Hollywood actors and actresses who served in World War II who never got the recognition they deserved. And a lot of actors and actresses who didn't serve, but yet the propaganda coming out of Hollywood to promote their movie careers had them being like uh, uh, heroes in World War II when they never went overseas. So much for Hollywood. Remember Clint Eastwood? Ah, yeah. Dirty Harry. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, yeah, Clint Eastwood. How can we forget him? This actor may have the army to thank for his movie career. Clint Eastwood was drafted into the Army in 1950 during the Korean War and stationed at Fort Orrin, California. An Army friend, Chuck Hill, had contacts in Hollywood and thought that he might do well in the movies. Before then, though, Eastwood narrowly escaped death when a military plane he was flying in crashed into the Pacific Ocean. He managed to use an inflatable raft to swim to shore. And testifying at the hearing about the crash prevented him from serving in the war in Korea. What a great actor he turned out to be. All right, Ed McMahon. Oh, my goodness gracious. Ed McMahon, Johnny Carson's Tonight Show sidekick. He was a Marine Corps flight instructor for two years before finally getting his orders flying combat in 1945. They were canceled, however, before he could ever get there because atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He did end up 
flying 85 combat missions during the Korean War. He earned six air medals and retired as a full bird colonel. Now, speaking of, of Ed McMahon, let's talk about old Johnny Carson. There's been a long-standing rumor that Ed McMahon and Johnny Carson uh, uh, served together and that Johnny uh, was uh, Ed McMahon's commanding officer in World War II. Uh, there's no truth to it. Johnny was in the Navy. In 1943, he was hoping to be a pilot. He was assigned to be a midshipman instead. He reported for duty in 1945, the same year that Japan accepted surrender terms, marking the end of the war. As you might imagine, Carson's military career was pretty quiet after that. Johnny Carson said the highlight of his whole war experience was getting to perform magic tricks for James Forrestal then Secretary of the Navy. How about Drew Carey? You guys know Drew Carey. He served in the United States Marine Corps for six years. That was where he first acquired his signature black glasses and the buzz uh, cut look that we're all familiar with. Now, this is something that's going to shock everybody. Montel Williams. You never think of Montel Williams as a mere daytime talk show again after you hear this. He's actually an incredibly accomplished veteran, serving 22 years in the military before leaving as a lieutenant commander. He started his career in the Marines, then was discharged when he was accepted to the Naval Academy. After earning a degree in general engineering there, he spent years as a cryptology officer notably during the invasion of Granada. He has a slew of awards and medals under his belt. Mocktail Williams. Think about that next time you watch him on TV. Most of the younger generation never heard of Glenn Miller, but the older generation knows about Glenn Miller. What a great orchestra leader he was. He wanted to serve his country in war. But they said he was too old at the time. He was 38 years old. And the Navy turned down his services. Now, the famous band leader and composer actually had to convince the Army Air Force to accept him by saying he wanted to lead a modernized Army band. And it worked. And his band would go on to do a weekly radio broadcast that was so successful he was upgraded to a special 50-piece band that traveled all over the world playing for our troops. In England alone, Glenn Miller and his band gave over 800 performances. On December 15, 1944, Major Glenn Miller was on his way to Paris when his plane disappeared. Glenn Miller, nor the plane has ever been found. How about the uh, rough and ready guy, Charles Bronson? Oh, yeah. You know Charles Bronson for his role in The Magnificent Seven? Remember that movie? The Dirty Dozen? Boy, that was a good one. Once Upon a Time in the West, and boy, he was really known for all those movies uh, called Death Wish. 
but did you know he probably never would have come an actor if it weren't for the military? Bronson, whose last name was Butchkinski, if I can pronounce that right, but he changed that during the Red Scare of the 1950s just to protect himself. He grew up in poverty. Charles Bronson and his family were so poor that he once had to wear his sister's dress to school because there were no other clothes for him in the house. In 1943, during World War II, he was drafted into the Army Air Corps, where he started out working as a truck driver, but eventually became a tail gunner in a B-29. After the war was over, he was awarded a Purple Heart for an injury he received in the service and used a GI Bill to study acting, which eventually helped him become the action hero we are all familiar with today. Well, there's another Hollywood dispute that uh, I have to bring up. And it's interesting to me to go read one report and then see another report on an actor or actress. It is almost proven that Charles Bronson did serve in World War II, but he drove a truck, but he stayed in Arizona driving a commissary truck to and from the warehouse to the commissaries and that he never went overseas. So is that the truth? Or is the truth that he was a tail gunner on a B-29? I tend to think that we'll never know the truth. Okay, here we go. Bang, bang, bang. Let's shoot them up good with our six shooters. J.M.R. Ness. Matt Dillon. Oh, yeah. You remember him well. Do you know he played Marshal Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke for over five decades? The show spanned from 1955 to 1975, and then there were five more made-for-TV movies follow-ups shot in the 80s and 90s. Matt Dillon. James R. Ness, before he started acting, enrolled in the U.S. Army in 1942. He wanted to be a fighter pilot. A little bit too tall, though. He was six foot seven. And there was no way that was going to happen. The maximum height of the pilots at that time was six foot two. And if they were that tall, like Stewart, they ended up in bombers. And the shore guys ended up in the fighters because the cockpits were so small. So instead of becoming a pilot, James R. Ness served as infantryman. And we're going to our last break. And I will be right back with the World War II story of Matt Dillon, James R. Ness, United States Army. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. 
This is Rocky Blyer, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and Warrior to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who've been touched by pediatric cancer. I'd also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio, for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and I'll see you at noon on January 28th. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, okay folks, we're back talking about the uh, Sheriff Matt Dillon, James R. Ness, who served in World War II with the Army as an infantryman. Well, he could be a pilot because he was six foot seven. He was too tall, so... Unfortunately, his height made him a good candidate for one of the most dangerous jobs. He was walking point most of the time. He was one of the first off the boat to test the water depth for the other men and look out for enemies, leaving him to be the first target. About a year after his uh, entry into the service, he was on a place called Anzio Beach in Italy. He was severely wounded on NGO Beach, especially in his right leg. Now, I'll get back to that in just a minute. But on the upside, his time in the hospital led to his work in television, eventually. While he was recovering, his brother came to visit him and encouraged him to study radio drama. After he returned home from service with a Good Conduct Medal, Purple Heart, Ron Star, and several other medals, he got a job as a disc jockey in Minneapolis, which is where he finally decided to try his luck as an actor in Hollywood. Now, that said and done, Arnest was hospitalized for a long time. He was very seriously wounded on Anzio Beach. Now, if you remember in Gunsmoke, his deputy, Chester Good, was played by Dennis Weaver. Dennis Weaver, uh, of course, acted uh, like he had an artificial leg, and he limped around the stage in the studio and on the show all the time uh, as Chester Good, James Arnest, Matt Dillon's deputy. Truth is, Dennis Weaver was only acting. Of course, he didn't have a bad leg. James R. Ness, however, had a limp for the rest of his life. It's not noticeable very much in the TV series Gunsmoke, but every once in a while, you can see a little limp in his walk. The truth is really, really strange sometimes. All right, let's get to, uh, uh, this is, of course, a little bit after World War II, but... Uh, Interesting little tale about the great guitarist, Jimi Hendrix. Remember him? Man, he could play the national anthem on the guitar like nobody else. Hendrix joined the Army in 1961, but it wasn't necessarily by choice. After being caught stealing cars in Seattle, the police gave him a choice. They said, Jimmy, you can join the Army or you can go to jail. Well, Jimi Hendrix joined the 101st Airborne Division in Fort Campbell. And he served one year before being discharged. The musician claimed he parted ways with the Army after a parachute accident. But that's not quite true. 
Jimmy claimed to the military that he had homosexual tendencies, and it was all a lie. He made the story up to get out of the service to focus on his music career. <laughs> the great guitarist, Jimmy Hendrix. Uh, ever pick up a Playboy magazine? Remember Hugh Hefner, the publisher, owner? Playboy Mansion, Hugh Hefner? Well, before becoming a publishing titan, he enlisted the Army in 1944 during the war as a writer for the military newspaper. He was stationed at Fort Adar, Adair in Salem, Oregon, and Camp Pickett in Virginia. And he would draw comics for the Army newspaper. It wasn't all desk work, though. During his two-year tour, Hefter won a sharpshooting badge in basic training. Now, where he came up with the idea of Playboy magazine, I have no idea other than he did enjoy the pictures of Marilyn Monroe. And that was his first centerfold. All right, well, we're going to talk about a, a, a veteran that you have never heard about, yet you have seen him in movies and on television many, many times. The veteran's name is Bugs Bunny. Really. Warner Brothers produced a cartoon called Super Rabbit, where Bugs says, this looks like a job for a real Superman, then jumps into a phone booth to presumably change into his Superman costume. When he emerges, though, he's in a Marine's uniform singing the Marine's hymn. The Marine Corps loved the homage so much they officially inducted the fictional rabbit as a private, even producing real dog tags for him. Bugs Bunny was officially discharged at the end of World War II as a master sergeant. You folks remember David Niven, the English actor? Though living in Hollywood when the war broke out, World War II, David Niven traveled home to Berlin, I'm sorry, Britain, <laughs> to rejoin the Army. He had served in uh, the British Army during the 1930s. Besides making films for the air war effort, Niven took part in the invasion of Normandy. He eventually advanced to the rank of lieutenant colonel. Uh, we're going to run out of time for me to get to everybody, but if you ever want to read a, a real story about a real war hero, go to David Niven's story. Very, very brave man. Now about Mel Brooks. Yeah, old Mel Brooks, Blazing Saddles, and a lot of satirical-type uh, movies that he produced and starred in. He joined the Army toward the end of the war. He was only 17 years old. He served in World War II. Mel Brooks served as part of an engineer combat battalion. And guess what he did? Old Mel defused landmines ahead of advancing troops. Very brave man. Kurt Douglas served in World War II, joined the Navy uh, in 1941, he served as a communications officer in anti-submarine corps and received a medical discharge due to war injuries in 1944. Now, this one might shock you. Audrey Hepburn. Remember that? Remember her? Gorgeous, gorgeous lady. Audrey Hepburn's British father 
was a Navy sympathizer, uh, sorry, a Nazi sympathizer who became estranged from her family prior to the outbreak of World War II. Contrastingly, Audrey Hepburn spent the war years in occupied Holland, during, during which her uncle was executed for sabotage against the Nazi occupation and her half-brother sent to a German labor camp. Audrey Hepburn helped the Dutch resistance by giving secret dance performances in order to raise money as well as by de delivering messages and packages. Audrey Hepburn. And the Afro-American, Josephine Baker. Now, Josephine Baker was a fabulous entertainer, and she was American by birth. But due to the segregation of the era, she went to France and became a star in France rather than Hollywood. She was also a naturalized French citizen who was active in the French resistance during World War II. Now, besides entertaining troops, Josephine Baker sheltered refugees and delivered secret messages, including military intelligence. She, would award, she was awarded numerous French medals and honors for his, her dangerous work as a spy for the resistance during World War II. You know, folks, we can look at an era, the golden era of Hollywood. I don't think there was any time during that era where people said, oh, they're communist sympathizers, or there may be one or two, especially during the Red Scare of the 50s, but during World War II, there wasn't very much uh, criticism of Hollywood because most of the people joined. They did something patriotic. They paid their dues. Uh, uh, if the ladies couldn't serve in uniform, they entertained the troops. Uh, like Carol Lombard, uh, who, who was Clark Gable's wife, died in a plane crash. Uh, so many people from Hollywood did their duties. Uh, Sophie Tucker, Sophie Tucker, she was a little bit older, but she used to entertain the boys who were headed out uh, to the Pacific. Uh, she used to say that that, that, that maybe uh, uh, snow on top, but still fire in the furnace. She was a pistol. There are a lot of boys who who, dan who dance with the stars from Hollywood at the canteens before they went overseas uh, in World War II out in California. I don't know exactly what took place in Hollywood and what transformed them into such uh, politically active. Uh, let's just say left-wing activists. I do not know if we could get that kind of patriotism and volunteers if something like World War II happened again out of Hollywood. And by the way, Hollywood, they're having a tough time right now. Nobody's going to movies. Not many movies being made. A lot of the actors have gone to uh, foreign films. Um, and I've watched some of them, the acting, and the films are not as good as they used to be. So pandemic's uh, taking its toll, even on the Hollywood actors. There were others, too, who served and need to be mentioned. The, the list is long, long, long. Uh, so many guys lost their lives in World War II who were up-and-coming actors 
and we never knew their names because they went down in flames or they were killed on a beach out in the Pacific Ocean. You know, folks, I'm going to say this uh, just once. My uh, uncle, one of my uncles served in World War II. He was with the United States Marine Corps. My uncle went on an island with 200 Marines, and he was one of seven that got off alive. He had nightmares and PTSD for the rest of his life. It was not identified back then, just like Jimmy Stewart. They just didn't know. They called it combat fatigue. Yeah, they were fatigued, all right, mentally and physically. My uncle tried his best. Uh, he became a, a contractor, a, a builder. Um, he told me right after I returned from Vietnam, it was the first time he ever talked to me. He said, Peter J., that's what he called me, Peter J., uh, he said, I'd like to talk to you about your service in Vietnam. He said, you're the only one I can talk to because no one else was in combat. You know, I was in combat for, with the Marines out in uh, the Pacific. I said, I know that, um, and, and thank you for your service. But uh, he said, I remember it every day of my life. Every night, I still have the nightmares, just like Jimmy Stewart did. And for whatever reason, my uncle ended his life with a bullet to the brain in the 60s. So did the commander of the USS Indianapolis that went down in World War II. War is a nasty thing, folks. It doesn't matter if you're a Hollywood star or, or, or if you were a, a, a soda jerk serving Cokes in a drugstore. Uh, Peter, I want to interrupt cafe. You quickly. Yeah, uh, well, let me finish with this, David. For those of us who made it home from war, we are changed. The beast called war changes everyone. You cannot escape nor avoid the memories nor the nightmares, but we are alive. And yes, folks, it's a wonderful life. Merry Christmas, everyone, and have a safe New Year. Go ahead, David. Okay, I just want to remind everybody to get out and vote here in Georgia. This is so important. You know, we've got baby killers running for office uh, in the, the call, one of them calls himself a reverend. I don't understand that. They also want to, they will disarm the army and the, they will disarm our military and they will also ruin the economy and our medical system. So it's so important to get out and vote for Kelly Loeffler and David Per. Purdue, you have until the 5th of January, but do it before then. And uh, we'll be uh, starting our next show very shortly. Stay tuned for a couple of messages, and uh, we'll be back with It's Your Estate. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.